Hello everyone, hope you're all doing very well. So today, really cool interview booked. We are interviewing JC, aka Ninja, or Paperwork Ninja, from our Discord server. Uh, a, or previously was, a EF111A Raven Technician. And this is such a cool plane, and hence, really look, looking forward to this interview. Hello JC, do you want to be Ninja or JC today? Whatever whatever you can remember, that's easiest. I just remember you as Ninja, so I'm going to do That'll that. That'll work. Hello there. Right, um, I'll read out your synopsis first of all. All right, I enlisted in the Air Force 1992, went through basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, then was sent to tech school at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado. I was trained as as a flight controls and instrumentation specialist there, and in August of 1993, I graduated from tech school and was assigned to the 429th Electronic Combat Squadron at Cannon Air Force Base in eastern New Mexico, where I worked on the EF-111 Raven. Let me just make sure I haven't skipped anything there. Yep. Uh, I like to summarize my primary tasks like this. I worked on the automotive equivalent of power steering, flight controls, and cruise control, autopilot, automatic terrain following radar, which that must have been a really interesting piece of kit. I also had to know a great deal about other specialist systems like engines, fuel, hydraulics, radar, and primary navigation, as all of those things went through to my instruments, so they're all linked together. Plus, I worked on the pitot-static systems, which gives all the input for speed, altitude, etc., and ties into other nav uh, autopilot systems. I also came in as the F-111 and EF-111A fleets were being modernized by switching from analog to digital uh, flight control computers, MFDs, and the like. Basically, if the pilot had a readout for it, I had to know how, how at least a bit about how it worked. The only downside was coming in at the end of the plane service life here, and as I watched the F-111F were retired and replaced uh, at our base by the Block 30 and Block 40 F-16. Luckily, I did get to deploy to Italy for Denny flights during the Yugoslavian breakup and civil war. Saudi Arabia for Southern Watch after the first Gulf War and Nellis Air Force Bay for green flag exercises. The ground attack equivalent of the uh, fighter specific red flag. Wasn't aware of that, but thank you. Green flag is one of the reasons I enjoy flying the Nevada map so much. Then in 1996, <coughs> I made the silly mistake of returning to civilian life and university. There's more, but that's the gist of my time spent on the F-111. Okay, before we go to the questions, F-111, um, almost a forgotten plane, and what a plane it was. Um, are we talking, we're talking 60s here, so we're, we're talking, I think it was even pre-Tomcat, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was the reason that the Tomcat was built. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the the 111 series, um, A through F, were built from 1965-ish mm -hmm. to 1972. I think there might have even been a couple of 76s as well, mm -hmm. some of the late F models. Um, it's uh, basically, you had your A models, which is what I worked on. Mm -hmm. um, those went through uh, regular production. The Navy was working on a B model, which if you look in on the original F-111 article, you'll see it. It's got a shorter uh, nose radome, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they found out that um, one that's fully loaded or even one that's kind of, even one that's empty 
you know, low on fuel, tends to uh, ruin the uh, shock absorption system in most of the carriers at the time. Mm -hmm. That's why the uh, that's why the F-111B model never came to mm -hmm. fruition. Mm -hmm. uh, they improved the uh, avionics, so to speak, uh, when they built the C and D models. Mm -hmm. The C models all went over to uh, Australia mm -hmm. for their uh, for their bombing, and uh, we got the D models. Um, the D models were basically no, nobody liked them, so they all got stuck at Cannon Air Force Base in uh, New Mexico. And by improving the avionics systems, that's where you got your uh, E and F mo models as well. And the last ones were built with the uh, the F models. So that's basically uh, yeah, that's kind of basically where it went to. Uh, there was the FB one eleven. Uh, which later we called the G model for mm -hmm. reasons I still have no idea mm -hmm. about. I guess they just wanted to get rid of the B. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that one was that one was the dedicated uh, that was the dedicated nuclear strike aircraft. Mm -hmm. All the others mm -hmm. were uh, nuclear or conventional strike. And then um, then they decided in the I want to say in the late seventies um, they decided to. Uh, add on the uh, the ALQ-99 uh, jamming system to the F-111. Uh, that way they could have uh, that way they could have tactical jamming systems similar to the Navy's EA-6 Prowler. Mm -hmm. But uh, the F-111, by the time that it was getting into the uh, D and E models, that's when the that's when you started seeing the first uh, F-14As coming out. Mm -hmm. Grumman. Uh, Grumman actually worked with General Dynamics to put the F-111 together, and they um, they basically took that and worked with um, they basically took that you know everything they learned from the F-111 program, and they used that to build the the F-14. Um, I always find it kind of funny that they that they decided to go with a tandem seating arrangement mm -hmm. on the F-14. Because um, at the time that the F-111 was being designed and built in the in the late 50s, early 60s, the Navy had this thing about tandem side-by-side, -side, not tandem, but side-by-side -side seating. And that's why the F-111 is side-by-side -side seating. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, had, had, had it just been an Air Force project, that would have originally been in a tandem format, similar to the Tornado. Roger. Roger. I mean, I'm, uh, my understanding of why this was built early Cold War is that to begin with, uh, America had high level fast bombers, Hustler and things like that, I guess, 50s. Right. Then the SA-2s and whatnot came into play. So you can go high anymore. You get shot down. And then you wanted a terrain hugging, very fast ground attack plane. Is that where this was developed? Right. This The, the F-111 um, actually was a replacement for the Hustler. Mm. Um it's one of those things where the Hustler was the Hustler's a fantastic aircraft. Um, absolutely beautiful. I mean, you just look at that thing and it screams, you know, high speed nuclear death, mm -hmm. which that's what you want your that's what you want bombers to do. Um, you know, you, you want them to kind of scare people. Mm -hmm. uh, the F one eleven, um, once the uh, once the SA two guideline had been uh, you know, had been brought out, uh, as they found out in nineteen sixty with the Gary Powers incident, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um they decided to go the opposite, and they decided to just go uh, speed and low altitude to try and stay under the radar. Mm -hmm. And that's where the train following uh, system comes mm -hmm. in. And it worked, you know, it worked fantastically. 
um, the only thing you had to remember was to uh, tell the uh, pilots, keep your hands off the stick, mm -hmm. trust the computer. Mm -hmm. um, the first, there were quite a few uh, F-111 uh, A model incidents where they didn't, they didn't listen to that advice. Saw, you know, saw the hill coming up, didn't trust the mm -hmm, machine, mm -hmm. pulled back, screwed everything up, mm -hmm. boom. They became one with the earth. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's it, it flew low, it, sorry, it flew low, the system, didn't it? Low and um, fast. About, about 200 feet. Yeah, which is... 200 feet was we, super low for a bomber. 25 ton, 30 ton bomber, yeah. Just saying, same logic as the tornado. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, uh, like we always say, we always, I mean, even the, even the B1 uh, Lancer has the same uh, terrain following system that the F-111 does. And that thing is huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So um, they're, uh, you know, the, the tornado, interestingly enough, uh, when uh, the United Kingdom couldn't get the F-111K model as they were hoping to get, that's when they started working with, um, I think it was, not, I don't think it was Messerschmitt, but I know that they worked with uh, somebody in France and somebody in Germany, maybe even somebody in Italy, uh, to create uh, Panavia, I think it was, mm -hmm. uh, to, to build the tornado. So essentially, um, I always like to consider the F-14, the B-1, and the tornado all to kind of be spiritual successors of the uh, of the F-111. So... Yep, yep. You know, uh, and even to that extent, the uh, the the Sukhoi uh, Su-19 Fencer, which is scarily enough still in service. Yep. A lot of Russians. Uh, there. Yeah, um, it's it. They, they basically they they hate to admit it, but yes, they stole the F-111 yeah. design. Roger. And they made it they made it horrible looking too. So <laughs> big big square square intakes and all that. But uh, no, they they still use it, which just it, it amuses me. But uh, at the same time, it's kind of like, yeah, we could have kept ours too. But there were there were reasons that that we got rid of it. So but we can go through that later. Yeah, and we can literally just sit here and talk for two hours now, just about this kind of hitting the. But I'm gonna be disciplined. I'm gonna say no. Just a couple of points of interest. It had an escape pod rather than ejection seats per se, didn't it? Uh, yes, all of them had that. Um, the Air Force was originally just gonna go with uh, ejection seats uh, as part of the. It's part of the TFX or Tactical Fighter Experimental Plan. Uh, when the Navy signed on to it to make it a multi-service aircraft, uh, they decided that they wanted to have a uh, they wanted to have a crew pod that could eject. Uh, that way, they would have some kind of survival shelter, and also since it had neutral buoyancy, if they ditched over the water, um, it would be able to float. And they could actually, you could actually bail it by oh. moving the uh, control stick back and forth. Um, the one thing, though. Uh, you know that's that's the one thing that, that left with the uh, you know that that's one of the that's one of the reasons why the the pod survived uh, through all the various uh, iterations of the uh, of the aircraft as basically the the navy said you know put this on there or we're not taking it so we put this on there they don't take it so mm -hmm. otherwise it would have just been uh, you know it just would have been. Uh, ejector seats, but uh, the Navy wanted them originally as essentially what the F-14 is. They wanted them as a as a long range, uh, you know, a long range, high altitude, uh, heavy missile laden interceptor, and it was going to be the the F-111B model was going to mm -hmm. be the original carrier mm -hmm. of the uh, AIM-120, mm -hmm. the Phoenix, AIM-54, not yep. the yep. AIM-120, yes. AIM-54. Yeah, yeah, yep. sorry. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Yep, yep. Uh, no in other interesting points. It had a Bombay, didn't it? I remember. Yes, it did have a Bombay. Um, it didn't carry a lot in there. Mm. Usually, you'd get a couple of 750-pound bombs or a couple of B-61 nukes. Um, in the uh, EF-111, which I worked on, um, they were... They kept the bomb bay doors, and they added what they called the canoe. Uh, this was basically a giant canoe-shaped radome mm -hmm. for the uh, for the uh, various uh, transmitters that they were using for uh, electronic jamming. It it was about uh, I want to say about a foot to a foot and a half deep, maybe deeper. No, it had to be deeper. It had to be about three three feet deep, but. Um, that way, the uh, the antennas on the the jammer could actually move around. Um, it was basically what you would do is you would open up one of the uh, you'd open up the you'd open up the the, the port side uh, bomb bay door and hook that up, and then you could lower the canoe down to uh, to get into inside the uh, inside the bay there. Uh, I actually had one <laughs> instrument in there that needed to be uh, repaired kind of regularly so that was the um so we we got we got used to raising and lowering that that radome quite a bit roger and i think also, I had... also had the gun in there too didn't in the in the um, in the in the original it had the ability to carry a gun uh they decided they were going to put a uh, a rotating uh they were going to put a rotating weapon system in there uh basically you know a. Uh, uh, Essentially, it was a rotating pylon, and they were going to put a a, uh, a a a Vulcan on this rotating pod. Basically, looked like a rotisserie chicken. Um, but the problem that they had with the uh, Vulcan cannon was that it uh, tended to shoot a little high, and it would usually damage the nose whenever you shot it. So they had to get rid of it. Um, it it was a it was a mistake for them to build it that way, and they should have built a, a they should have built a, a better internal gun uh, that had nothing to do with the with the bomb bay itself. But that's another rant of mine, you know, of how <laughs> they how they you know how they could have improved the F one eleven before they before it ever got to where I was fixing them. But that's a long well, rant, they, and I don't want to bore you guys. <laughs> they they used that rotating system for the pave tech, then. Um, yes and no. Um, essentially, the the pave tacks on the F models, when those things were attached, they they always hung outside the uh, aircraft a little bit. So the only thing that it really did was raise and lower it. Um, it didn't, you know, move it around so you could have like a couple of bombs and then rotate it out to get the pave tack. Uh, the pave tack basically took up the entirety of the uh, bomb bay, and you just uh, dropped stuff off the wings after that. Well, John, uh, now I had a couple of TF. 30s that's right which went into the f14a is that correct yes yes um they used the tf30 uh three originally on the a models and a uh, combination of service life and just general underpoweredness um got it to where by the time i was uh coming in in the early 90s uh, we had replaced most of the uh, TF-30-3 engines with Dash 9s. Um, and the, uh, the, all the Dash 9s had come in from the, uh, from the D models because they were just basically sitting out in, in Arizona at the Boneyard and 
uh, they had these perfectly good engines on them. So they took the engines, uh, put them into the uh, put them into the engine bays of the A models, and went from there. Uh, the better models were on the basically on the uh, E and F models, and I think also maybe the C model. Um, but those uh, those aircraft despite being the same airframe, they actually had a slightly larger engine bay to take a more powerful engine. So um, once the F-14 came along, uh, I think that was, I forget which which version it was on the F-14, but I think it might have been the 9 at first on the old A models. And later, I think they might have gone to an, to an 11 or something like that for the uh, for the B through D models. Oh, job. Uh, two, uh, two more points to make. Engines obviously lead beautifully into speed. Now, this is the area I'm most interested in aviation, the kind of mid-60s, if you like, when speed was absolutely everything. And this thing, with internal bombs on, would go faster than an F-15 that came around 10, 15 years later that had no stores on. This thing would go Mach 2.5 plus with internal bombs on, which don't think anything in the world has ever done otherwise so i know there's, there's slightly faster planes in mig 2031 fighters and stuff like that but as a bomber uh, exceptional speed yeah um it was you know i mean it's it's still kind of a um still kind of a thing that i remember from both uh fighter pilots and bomber pilots they would always say speed is life and the f-111 definitely you know definitely was a product of that mentality um and had it been on the b model that the navy wanted um you actually may not have seen you know that much speed because Sacrifices it was designed made, yeah. i mean that was just designed to be a giant mm -hmm. standoff mm -hmm. uh long range interceptor but the mm -hmm. uh the a models and further marks uh everything there was just pure speed now i remember one of my one of my old supervisors, uh, he had spent time at both Lake and Heath and Hayford. Mm -hmm. um, and during that time, um, he does remember an F-111 coming in uh, with the mock tape stuck at 3.5. So the, uh, the radome uh, had basically, and, you know, they, they always had the black nose radome. This thing had been burned white. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, you know, basically the, the front, you know, the, the, the front of the canopy had been uh, heated over enough to where mm -hmm. you couldn't see through it. So it could go fast. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, yeah, but yeah, is... 2.5, that was, uh, you know, 2.5 was its uh, legal limit. It was its listed speed, and you really didn't, you really mm -hmm. didn't want to go past that. Mm -hmm. You could. But you didn't want to. Um, the one thing that the Eagle had over the uh, over the 111 was maneuverability. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Pierre Quite Spray the, yeah. was very smart about that. Um, you know, maneuver plus energy equals a, a great fighter. And when they decided that you know when they decided to pinch pennies and uh, you know start making the F-15 into a strike aircraft, uh, it lost that maneuverability on the E models. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a huge trade-off fighters should be fighters bombers should be bombers that's Absolutely. just kind of my thing um roger and but i don't make those decisions so 
And one more thing is obviously, mm-hmm. needless to say, this is probably one of the most planes I'd like to see in DCS. I'm sure a lot of people from my generation would say that as well. But um, the other, the last thing I'd say is kind of what it means to me and my memories. Uh, we, I'm lucky enough to live pretty much next to RAF Lakenheath. That was the base for these for 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 a long time, and um, I've been to many an air show there. And I mean the good old air shows before they had right. health and safety. You could go close to the runway, get really close to the planes. And there were there, there are certain um, of the American displays that really stuck in my mind, just in terms of not the acrobatics, because this thing is not an F-16. It's not going to do 9G, you know, continuous mid-radius turns. It's, it's not, not for it's long. a bomber. It's a big bomber. But it's the violence and the sound. So it was those things that really, uh, you know, really, and why I'm here today into planes, I'm talking close up, as fast as they can, pretty much. Uh, the B-1, massive earth move shaker that was. I mean, close, you know, hundred, few hundred feet away from that. Amazing. SR-71, couldn't do manoeuvres, but really was violent. And this, it was so loud with those TF-30s compared to the contemporaries. It's big. And back then, you could go all the way up to Mach 1. You couldn't obviously make a sonic boomy, but right to the edge. And the whole thing around it was just a massive condensation cloud because the fight was so violent in the air and those obviously those memories don't leave you and it's just something, no, it's they something never do. you don't see that in modern day air shows you never horn it i know you do get condensation clouds and stuff the nearest you get now is a raptor which is a very cool plane i'm not going to lie but back in these days the violence and the speed limits obviously you just can't forget that kind of thing um one more t- if i could just get 30 seconds on you for what the ef 111 was before we jump into the questions and sorry we've taken so long but it's just too much of a cool plane not to talk about Oh, don't worry. I could, I could talk about this stuff mm. for days. Um, but uh, the EF-111, um, the, uh, the Air Force basically saw what the Navy was doing with their, their tactical uh, radar jamming. And they, decide, they thought that uh, using the EF as a way to lead in uh, for strike packages was a, um, it was a way to, to lead in for strike packages to, to jam enemy radar while the strike packages came through. Uh, they decided that would be a really good idea. They do low-level penetration. Why not do some radar jamming on top of it? So, uh, in the late seven, mid to late seventies, they started working on modifying old F-111A models because at the time they've already they've already uh, switched everything out to the E and F models uh, for for your bombers. Um, so they took the old uh, A models and they started just kind of uh, talking to the engineers at General Dynamics and Grumman and saying, okay, how do you, you know, how, how do we put this together so it flies properly? Uh, I'm not sure who originally started working on the ALQ-99 system. I seem to remember it being Honeywell, but, you know, time being what it is, I could be wrong. Um, but they were working with the people who actually designed the, the ALQ-99 and decided that what they would do is they would put basically a, a huge, you know, a large number of transmitters in the bomb bay and build a radome, you know, underneath that, and then put the receivers up on the top of the tail in its own, uh, basically in its, in its own receiver bay called the football. Um, and they decided to do that to. Uh, provide you know essentially uh, anti-radar capabilities for the uh, for the 
for the Air Force uh, strike uh, packages. And that's essentially where the, the EF came from. And it seemed to work pretty well. Moja. Uh, now, sadly, we don't have electronic warfare in DCS in terms of, at least in terms of um, actual, you know, role proper EW planes, I should have said. I don't think lightly. you'll get it either. No, I don't quite think we'll honestly. get it. No, I don't think we'll get it. Uh, the, the ALQ-99 is still in use. Mm, yeah, and I'm not even sure we really should get it, but... Um, it just would be interesting as well. Right, we're going to punch on now because it's just one of these interviews that's generated so much interest. And as ever, everyone's got limited time. We're just going to blast on. So, sure. uh, quick, so let's just blast through these questions. And thank you for all the questions. Uh, uh, question zero, apparently what question zero. What was your first impression when seeing the F-111 in the flesh for the first time? Uh, the first time I saw it was actually at an air show. I was probably about 14 or 15 years old. Um, my dad had worked in our Air National Guard unit uh, in, in Springfield, Illinois, when um, they were still using F-4s. And every year we'd have what we called the uh, Springfield Air Rendezvous. It was a huge civilian and military air show. And they had gotten, um, they had gotten an F model to fly down from Plattsburgh Air Force Base in upstate New York. And the first time I saw that, I was like, this is a way larger aircraft than mm -hmm. I'm used to seeing. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I was used to seeing F-4s, and this thing, you know, was bigger than an F-4. And I was thinking, okay, this is impressive. Um, you know, because we had the we had the F had the F-4s in uh, in Springfield, and we had the A-37. Yeah, the the little you know the little A-37B Dragonfly in uh, Peoria. Uh, so that's what I was used to seeing flying around. Then I see this thing up front, and I'm like okay, this is really cool. Um, you know, you, you saw, you saw the, you know, the ability to sweep the wings, to move that back and forth. Um, they did a couple of small flybys, but they didn't do anything, you know, super impressive. Uh, that really wasn't the pilot's job at the time. He's just kind of to show them, this is what it looks like swept. This is what it looks like wings forward, you know, zoom around the base a couple times and, you know, there you go. Um, but yeah, I mean, the first time I, I saw that, it was just, you know, I was like, okay, this is a really unique plane, and it, it stuck with me. And then when I found out that I was going to be working on F-111s, I was sitting there going, man, you know, that it, I, I can't say it was a dream come true. Um, I really had no idea what I was getting into with uh, when, you know, when I was getting my, uh, my, my career field selected for me, uh, more or less, in the Air Force. But uh, I, I definitely wasn't you know, sitting there going, oh, man, F-111s, you know, you know, my, my life is over. You know, uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to be on a really unique uh, aircraft system. And then when we got to uh, Lowry uh, for my tech training, um, the only F-111 I saw there was actually being used by the, uh, the weapons school uh, to learn how to load uh, bombs onto it. So I saw that and it was like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to work on. And... You know, it still just kind of stuck with me that, yeah, this is a, you know, it's a huge aircraft, uh, despite only being, you know, manned by two people. And it's got, uh, I mean, it's, I looked at it, I looked at all the pylons, I looked at the bomb, I was like, you can hang a lot of ordnance off this thing. Uh, but once I finally, you know, saw it and it, it really kind of hit me, I was like, okay, I'm going to try and make this as, en as enjoyable as possible. So, yeah, the, the F-111, it, it really, you know, it, it had that effect of, wow, that, you know, it's like, I really don't know how to explain it other than, you know, it definitely piqued my curiosity. Mm -hmm. 
It's a WoW plane. It's not the B1. It is a WoW plane. Yeah, the, the B1, though, those things are freaking huge. Absolutely, yeah. I, yeah. I was I, I was surprised at how big they were, but uh, they had one uh, transported, again, for the, the weapons troops, and they had one transported to Lowry before uh, I left there in 93, and we walked under that thing, and it was just like, okay, uh, how do you actually get up there to do any of the avionics work? Mm -hmm. And then you find out that, oh, yeah, you do most of your avionics work inside the aircraft, mm -hmm. which... Oh no, that you know, how, you know how unfortunate to uh, have to do all of your avionics work <laughs> in, in, the, in a shelter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, mm -hmm. in cover the entire time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know how how terrible. Um, definitely didn't get that on the one eleven. But uh, no, um, what, once I saw it, it was just you know I, I was I was definitely I was definitely wowed by it. Roger, uh, why did you choose to enlist in the air force? Well, uh, the the short answer. Uh, I wasn't happy when uh, I wasn't happy in college. Uh, it was my freshman year of college. I was trying to work a. Uh, I was basically trying to work a full time job and go with an overloaded uh, course schedule. And something had to give because I wasn't doing very well at work. wasn't doing very well at school. So I just said, uh, you know, screw it. I'm enlisting. See y'all in four years. Um, that's that's basically the short answer. But the the longer the much longer answer is, um, you know, uh, my dad, he served in the Air Force and then later the Air National Guard. Um, and I kind of grew up around the uh, the flight line with the F-4s on it. Um, so, you know, that, you know, it, it was always in my mind that at some point, you know, I was going to do military service. Um, I figured I might go in, as, go in as an officer, but I was just so sick of, you know, I was just so sick of university studies that I was just like, nope, I'm I'm out, I'm done. Uh, I'll enlist and you know, kind of take a break from take a break from reality as it was. Um, but uh, no, it was uh, you know, I left school, enlisted, spent four years in the Air Force, and you know, I, I worked base I worked exclusively on the on the the F one eleven. Um, but I decided to go back to college after that, which kind of a mistake. But uh, you know, I mean. I, I looked at it like this. If I'd have stayed in, I'd be retiring right now. So mm. that just kind of that just kind of kind of tells you. Um, so there, you know, there was that. But uh, our squadron was very unique, um, not always in a good way. Uh, we were overstaffed, overmanned, had too many aircraft. Uh, they didn't, you know, and because the airframe was getting retired, they didn't want to split us into multiple aircraft on multiple bases. So. We got we got stuck with a lot of people. Um, I think by the time I think at its peak, the four twenty ninth had six hundred people in the squadron, which you know that's that's huge. It's you know multiple company strength for uh, multiple company strength. You know in, in army terms, I guess maybe even almost close to a, a, a small battalion. Um, I'm not real sure. I don't you know. The only time I dealt with uh, the army was when I was at Aviano in Italy, and they, you know, they worked on helicopters right next to us. So that's about all I know for them. But uh, yeah, we, we had a lot of people uh, in a very small space, and we had about five different ways of uh, of senior enlisted uh, management wanting to do things because they all did things differently at their old bases. But that's also another long story that you know would take a lot of time to get into. Roger. Um, where did we get to? I'm just going back there. Okay. 
Uh, will desync ever be fixed in DTS? Well, it just shows that we we do not vet our questions. Anyone's allowed to ask anything. Next, was <laughs> that's okay. No, oh no, that's oh, okay. I, I always tell them. Um, you know, I have no idea. Uh, my programming skills definitely aren't good enough for that. Um, and I'm assuming this is dealing mostly with multiplayer. Yes. Um, I don't do enough of that. To, yeah, I don't really mm -hmm. do enough to uh, enough multiplayer really to uh, to you know to get a lot of those desyncs. Um, but uh, it's you know I mean it it is it is definitely kind of, it is definitely annoying. Um, but you know it's like I, I'm right there with you guys when you, when I do multiplayer, it is a little tough. Um, but it's not something so terrible that uh, that I got to really worry about it. I mean unless you're just just you know basically you know massively swarming a server you don't i don't really think you have a lot of problems with it no, so Joe, it's just about how intelligent your code is and dts is good it's not that intelligent code but they i'm sure that will just get better and better anyway three was the raven you worked on with the pratt and whitney tf30 papa 3 or the papa 9 turbo fans and what is the difference between the two engines um basically we we had we had the nines um they were from the d models uh basically it gave more power uh more thrust um it, i mean it was you know it, it was an improved mark um more power more thrust a little bit of fuel economy um you know was able to work on a it was able to make a stronger generator uh, but mostly the one thing that the that the that the p9s had over the p3s was life um the P3s were, the P3s were basically getting really old and were needing to be replaced anyway, so they upgraded the EF111 to the largest engine that could fit in its bay, and that was the nine. So, I think uh, there were there were still larger engines on the E models and the uh, F models, and we couldn't use those just because it they didn't fit just right in the uh, engine bays like the nines did. And by the time I had gotten there, they'd pretty much switched everything over to, to the uh, to the the D model engines. Um, I think there might have been one or two aircraft left with the originals, and that swap out happened probably within my within the first two months of my being at Canon. Oh, jump! Okay, very good. Back to the questions. So, why was the F-111A nicknamed Spark Vark, Fat Tails? And electric fox. Any stories behind those? I've never heard of any of those. Well, uh, the spark fork came because uh, the unofficial nickname, up until the time that the aircraft was retired, when it got its official nickname, was the Ardvark. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and they just decided to call the EF the spark fork because, well, we did electronic warfare. Electronics, sparks, boom. But uh, most of the time, we didn't call it that. Um, Fat Tails, that was just on one of the... Uh, that was just on the. Actually, that was just bas basically something that somebody put on a on a morale patch once. Um, but the reason why we called it, you know, why we taught you, know, you know, anytime you hear like you know, oh, fat tails in the pattern. Well, that's how you determined, you know, whether it was one of ours or another squadron's aircraft. Ours had the, ours had the giant football shaped radome on the uh, on the tail, so you could tell, you know, yeah, th this isn't uh, an F model coming in. It's it's an EF. Um, as far as the electric fox, the only time I have ever heard that used was on an old documentary from the Discovery Channel, uh, Wings. Um, but yeah. 
And um, it was, you know, very 1980s. So everything, you know, synthesizer music, stock mm-hmm. footage, all that fun stuff. Um, that's the only time I have ever heard it called the electronic, the, the electric fox mm-hmm. in any kind of, in any kind of situation. Um, I think, uh, I think, honestly, I think a British writer nicknamed it that, uh, hoping it would stick and it just really didn't. Mm-hmm. Roger. Okay. And- just a guess. Uh, did you uh sorry what was the most common fault you had to deal with working on the aircraft and just before we go into that one one note i've just taken down is that this plane as i'm sure you sure you would agree is a massive jump in technology in terms of the amount of new stuff that was in this plane compared to other planes must be right up there and obviously as soon as you do that you're going to get lots of problems with faults and i personally knew it in the 80s as a plane with lots of faults because it had so many complex systems what's your actual professional take on that and obviously the question it was um it was definitely a uh it it was definitely a pig for maintenance it it really was it it needed it needed a lot of maintenance to be done uh to, to keep it flying um the the biggest one that i remember as far as faults were concerned um, not so much in the in the actual flight controls themselves, or even the automatic terrain following radar, or the auxiliary flight reference system, or anything like that. Um, for the attack radar guys, I think the uh, I think the the INS navigation system uh, that was their big that was their big bugaboo. Mm-hmm. Um, for the communication, navigation, and penetration guys, um, I would have to just say that anything any faults that they had uh you know any constant recurring faults that they had um would be classified um Mm. just because of the the mission of our aircraft um and then for me the two biggest that we had would probably be fuel indicating systems and um on and this is only on the a models which is what i've worked on mostly is what they call the translating cal system um that thing was what's that um what it is as as an aircraft speeds up and slows down the engines naturally need more or less uh more or less air forced into the intakes Mm -hmm. um basically to try and avoid compressor stalls Mm -hmm. um as it as the aircraft goes faster it needs uh, air, it needs the airway to be more restricted so you don't get too much air going in and stalling out the engine. Mm-hmm. And as the engine and as the aircraft goes much slower, you know, as if it's getting ready to take off or land, um, it needs to be able to get more air in so you don't, you know, so you don't choke out the engine. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the translating cal system did was it took part of the intake and moved it forward. And it created a gap in between the, uh, you know, between the the door, you know, between the, you know, the main intake and the actual fuselage. Um, this thing was a bitch to work on. Pardon my French. Um, everybody hated it. Uh, didn't matter whether it was your first day on the job or your last day on the job. Um, this thing was just, this thing was just terrible why is that access or i'm just looking at it now it's like a little uh, kind of air spike isn't it um yeah access yeah, and, 
well, you, you had that, and you had the uh, you had the spike system as well, oh. and basically at at basically at mock speeds, that thing would open up inside the intake to restrict air, mm. um, and that the, every every uh, F one eleven had that. Um, the cal system uh, was only on the A models, and then the later intake systems uh, took what they called a, a blow-in door, which just used air pressure to determine uh, you know, when that needed to be opened and when it needed to be shut, and it worked perfectly without any kind of uh, you know, without any kind of electronic systems requiring, you know, to determine what speed you're at, where it's going to open, where it's going to close, you know, what, what position are your wings in. Yeah, all this stuff goes into whether or not this little, this little thing mm. This little front of the intake moves forward by about six inches. Yeah, um, very overcomplicated system for you know for the time. Um, one of the problems we had with it was that it was uh, it all ran through one relay package, and whenever you read the, it seemed like any time that you read the uh, the schematic for it, you would get about thirty different interpretations of mm -hmm. what everything was. Um, sometimes because the majority of relays in this relay package were the same, you could very easily accidentally rewire to go through one, uh, one relay or another, and the plane would never know it. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you looked in your pin readout and said, okay, um, we've got to put signal through pin 14 and 15 to go through this relay here. Well, you'd find out that your signal was actually on, you know, 19 and 30 going through some, you know, some other weird relay. And it turns out that the people and at the uh, at the depot at McClellan Air Force Base in uh, Sacramento, California, they may have rewired it without telling anybody. But, hey, it worked. So there was no problem. Right. No. Then we had to go in, try and, re you know, peel everything back as far as the wires were concerned, put them back into the correct places and uh, go from there. And every time there's always that seed of doubt, it's like, did I put this stuff back in the right place? Um, so the wiring was a nightmare. The relays were a nightmare. Uh, trying to get this thing to run back and forth with a pressure, uh, with the pressure test sets was a nightmare. Um, it was, it was the one thing that really made you hate that specific airframe. Mm. Um, and when you talk to, when I talk to other people in, in my uh, specialty field who were on the other aircraft, they're like, yeah, yeah, I went through that. You know, it's like, I went through that at Lowry and I am so glad I've never had to have the, I've never had to deal with that. Mm. It's like, come on down, come on down to black section. We'll, we'll initiate you in, in this, you know, in this new level of pain. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a, uh, there was that and the fuel indicating system, um, it could get, it could get a little funky, uh, because even though the pylons weren't plumbed for fuel on the uh, on the A model, uh, they still had the electronic, uh, they still had you know all the electrical uh, stuff in there, uh, in case they ever decided they were going to put you know something other than travel pods on the uh, mm. on the EF 111A pylons, which that never came to fruition. That's a whole other story as well. But you'd be going through and finding out that, oh, yeah, one of these, uh, you know, one, one of these uh, plugs had a, had a short on it. And that's what was causing, you know, that's what was causing your, uh, well, they'd have an open actually, but uh, that's what was causing your, uh, 
you know, your, your wing tanks to show as either empty when they didn't, you know, when they were full or, you know, they just read wrong. So you had to go and fight through that all the time. Um, and those were probably about the two worst systems that we had. Um, when we switched over from analog to digital flight control, it became, it became so easy to fix as far as, uh, as far as flight control and stall warning and landing configuration systems. Uh, it it became I mean it it became a whole nother bird really. Roger, uh, one thing I picked up from there is I mean it's slightly different, but one thing I'm picking up from a lot of mechanics, and we've done a few now, including I think F14. Um, always problems with these jets, with whatever you want to call them, but intake modification systems, intake supersonic ramps, intake. I mean it's kind of what you were talking about that cow system right. uh, every single plane and uh, to the point where a lot of planes have switches to disable them because half the time they fly and these ramp things don't work what is that why why is that why why is it always a problem is it because it takes such big pressures and they have to have big rams on them or or is it just coincidence do you think i think it's just physics hmm. i mean that that's really the only way i can describe it is um with with us uh, like I said, the, the spike system that we had to restrict airflow at high speeds, that worked really well. Uh, we almost never had a problem with that. Mm. Um, the CAL system, which was for low speed, that way you didn't you know choke out your engines and drop out of the air, um, that one was the pain in the butt. Um, the, the, you know, but I think a lot of times uh, people will take these, you know, will take these auxiliary things off because... Um, I, I honestly think a lot yeah. of the pilots do it because they, they just they just don't want one more button to push yep. or they don't trust the aircraft and yep. they don't trust the computers. Mm -hmm. And if you don't trust your aircraft, you die. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Um, as far as, you know, what we had on there, again, you really had to trust the system. And unfortunately, the relay package and the the hydraulic system that moved it, it was a pain in the butt. It was it overcomplicated it, and once they switched over to the pressure-based blow-in doors, mm -hmm. where there was no mm -hmm. computer input, there was mm -hmm. no relay package to move it. Um, that worked, you know, that worked a treat. Mm -hmm. So that was perfect. Um, that's really the big thing that it. Uh, that's really the big thing that that happened there was you got the, um, you you were able to you know maintain that issue of will we have enough air into the engine as we land and they were able to fix it with a mechanical problem and not an electrical problem or a hydraulic problem. So it was just, you know, a, a great, great improvement. I, I would have loved to have seen the, uh, I would have, would have loved to see him, you know, take the uh, E model and, you know, build them up to uh, the EF standard, but that never happened. So, you know, uh, you know, but that that would have that would have made it a lot easier for any any future uh, any future airmen assigned to the aircraft. Roger, very good. Okay, well, sounds good. Let's push on. Uh, right. Did you ever have a chance to fly? Okay, in oh sorry, in one or was it just sitting in the cockpit and working on the system? So did you ever ever get a free ride? I'm guessing is we're asking. I wish. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's again. This is this is a. This is a military complaint, so bear with me here. Um, 
the closest I ever got to that was working on engine runs. We'd have uh, we'd have an engine specialist who was run qualified to work in the uh, you know to, to work on in the pilot's seat. He'd crank up the engines, um, you know, run that through its paces. Usually, one of us had to be there to make sure the instrumentation was working properly. So that was always that was always fun. And then you could also see how the uh, hydraulic system worked. Kind of gave you an idea of how the the aircraft handled. But as for incentive rides as we called them. In the three years I was there, I saw one, mm -hmm. one flight line personnel get a flight. One. It was, it was one of the crew chiefs, one of the mechanics, um, and he worked his balls off to, to get, you know, to get a couple of different aircraft running. So he definitely deserved it. Mm -hmm. But the most people that we got going on there was uh, military personnel flight. Basically your accountants, your office workers, um, you know, your payroll guys, important guys. Don't get me wrong. You know, an army, you know, an army, you know, fights on its stomach and on its paychecks. But for God's sake, they didn't know the first freaking thing about aircraft. They knew that airplanes went up, airplanes come down, airplanes bomb stuff. But I don't think it would have killed the Air Force to put some of its avionics technicians up in the air a few times a year so we could see how the freaking things worked in the uh you know you know in real life so when it comes back down busted for one of our systems we can go oh yeah i know how this thing works in the uh i know how this thing you know i know how this thing's supposed to respond no no they'd give it to freaking you know they'd give it to the freaking pogues and call it good <laughs> roger uh yeah absolutely um I uh, don't know why they treat you so badly, but especially when you're fixing their planes. But I guess pol yeah. politics, I imagine. That's usually what it is. Uh, politics, and when you would see some of the uh, personnel flight people come out, you're sitting there going, oh, I get it. The uh, the pilots want to impress the cute girls. Oh. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. Right. Okay. It, 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 was, it was a thing in the 90s. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it is today, you know, but uh, it was definitely a thing in the 90s. Roger. Okay. Let's push on. Um, interesting one, and this is going to open up a can of worms, but let's see where we go. Was the ANAPQ-146 terrain-following radar a capable one, and was the aircraft able to fly low safely? Again, like I said earlier, trust the computer. It was a phenomenal system. They still use it. They still use it, or at least, you know, a successor system on the B-1. That tells you how good the system is, but if a pilot loses his nerve, you're gonna you're gonna crash. Trust the system, let it do its thing, and you're going to you know, and you're gonna have fewer problems with terrain following radar. Um, basically, what I did as far as the radar was concerned, uh, you know, I didn't swap out any of the you know, I didn't swap out any of the of the you know uh, transmitters or anything like that, I didn't even. Uh, and as as far as you know, finding problems with the transmitters or receivers, uh, that was actually a shop or attack radar or nav radar in our case. Um, that would be their job. But what I did was make sure that as the train following radar was sending uh, was giving signals to the displays, it was also sending signals to the flight control systems to move it automatically that way um you know if it found you know if it found an obstruction 
at at the altitude you're going in, it would pop you up in in enough time mm-hmm. to uh, to keep from you know to keep from mm-hmm. you know hitting the uh, to keep from hitting the uh, you know hitting the side of a mountain or something like that. Um, the closest I can say that they've gotten to it in DCS <laughs> is the A4, with that little terrain following you know, that little terrain avoidance radar they mm-hmm, have. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't do it automatically, but it kind of, right. It's, it's, it's a little, it's just a tiny bit older, but same era. And it kind of gives you that idea of, okay, you know, when you get that warning, you know, when you get that mm-hmm. warning tone mm-hmm. to tell you to pull up, it's kind of like that, except that instead of getting a warning tone to, to pull up, uh, the aircraft would automatically move up. You know, it would automatically mm-hmm. pull up mm-hmm. once it got to a certain distance, and it would either give you a, a 2G, 4G, or 6G climb. And you could set it for, I think, 1,600 and 200 feet. So if you wanted a really hard ride, you'd set it for 200 feet off the deck, 6G pull up, and, you know, ride him cowboy. That was basically it. But, yeah, the, the terrain-following system... Uh, both the the radar system and the automatic flight control system that it that it worked on, dead solid. Um, I think I might have we might have had one mm-hmm. uh, issue with it, and that was actually tri- you know that actually went back to the uh, to the primary transmitter uh, for the uh, the primary radar transmitter for the mm-hmm. uh, for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the secondary was working fine. They always had two systems on there, which was a great thing about the F one eleven. Most of its electrical systems triple redundant. You'd always have at least one or two sensors where, where you could. Um, you know, you'd always have, an, I should say, you had an extra one or two sensors wherever you could. Uh, in the case of the terrain following radar, you had a primary and secondary antenna. And um, if the primary failed, the secondary, you know, would, the secondary would, uh, would take over its duties as well. So, uh, but yeah, it was a very robust system. Uh, loved it because it, it, loved it because it never screwed up on me. Well, that's the that's an amazing system for for such an early system as well. Can you imagine that how early those computers must have been? I mean, I they was, were huge. I bet they, they were, were freaking huge, uh, and they and most of them they were analog systems. They weren't well, digital. That, so that's what I was going to say. I think we're talking analog or you know big great big valves blasting away trying to. Oh God, I can't even imagine. You, you had you had huge waveguides everywhere. Mm-hmm. You had, um, you know, I mean, you you had in, I mean. To, to put it mildly, um, your smartphone could probably run an F-111's electronic systems yeah, in terms of, of speed and power. Yeah. Um, however, uh, everything they had for the, the analog systems, I mean, I had in our flight control system, we had three computers for, for each axis, you know, pitch, roll, and yaw. We mm-hmm. had, I want to say, four different relay packages just for flight control alone for stall warning, feel and trim, uh, landing configuration, and I'm trying to remember what the other one was. I think it had something to do with the with the terrain following. No, it, it had something to do with uh, the air data computer. It had it, its own special relay package. And then that was on top of the, the primary relay package that our, our CAL system and spike system went through, as well as the uh, relay package for uh, navigation, which... Uh, you know, had the uh, the INS system and, and the backup system I worked on, the auxiliary flight reference system. So, yeah, um, once all of those went into, you know, one computer and like three different, uh, you know, and, and from like five down to, you know, mm. five down to three uh, relay packages, it got a lot better for maintenance. Right, yeah. 
Okay, awesome. Right, let's uh, punch on. Was the raven as massive as it looked? Yes, is the answer. It was friggin' huge, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was. Um, as I like to tell people, you know, it, it doesn't... I mean, it's it's no bigger than a regular F-111. Uh, the, the F-15 looks big because it sits high on that landing gear. Mm. You put the F-111 up to a, up next to, you know, a, an F-16 or the, the T-38, you know, basically the F-5. Mm. You sit there and you, you look at the F-16 and the F-5 and you're just like, oh, those are so adorable. Mm, yeah. Are those real size? <laughs> you know, um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a big, you know, it, it's a big combat aircraft. Uh, I mean, if you want big, though, I mean, real big for combat aircraft, look at the B-52 or the B-1. Um you know that's that's where you're going to see you know that's where you're going to see huge um you know that's you know it's like if if you want a big combat aircraft look at the b1 Roger. Uh, that thing's freaking huge i've got a cool but picture the, i've got a cool picture up f35 f16 eurofighter rafael all the things contemporary planes 18 22 f15 uh 30 27 uh and a um what do you call it a duck face and the F one eleven dwarfs them all. <laughs> it's just so yeah. I mean, big. it's it's a um, you know. I mean, I mean, that that's one of the things that you know we always joked with with the the F sixteen guys once uh, they took over in the uh, once they uh, switched out from F one elevens to F sixteens. We're like, oh, that's an adorable little thing. <laughs> is you know, is that a scale model? Yeah. You know, um, but. Nah, it's it's just one of those things, you know. It's a little inter-service rivalry, but it was it was a lot of you know, it's still a lot of fun regardless. Moja, okay. What was the most difficult system to work on the Raven? I think we've already answered that, so we'll move over that. Right. Was yeah, there... it's it's translating counts. Roger, we will get repeats. It's just how it is. Uh, was there anything that the pilots were complaining about often, and why? Um, if if different to the to cows? be totally honest, mm -hmm. to be totally honest, that they were missing their tea time. <laughs> just, they loved yeah. golf. That's all it was. It's like you know, I've it's like I've got a I've got I've got a, a golf foursome scheduled at uh, I got a golf foursome scheduled at, at thirteen thirty. I need to leave now. So mm -hmm. that was basically their their constant complaint was you know they weren't getting enough golf time. Mm -hmm. um, as far as maintenance was concerned, um, trying to get maintenance information out of a pilot is like trying to you know ask a toddler if he stole the cookie. Mm -hmm. Um. It's very difficult. They they don't, uh, you know, you, you really have, the, the guys in debrief, who in maintenance debrief who did this, um, I have nothing but respect for them because they were able to always get good info out of our, uh, out of our air crews for whatever systems were, were wrong. Um, it's just, it was kind of one of those things where you'd sit there and be like, sir, you know, what was there a problem with, you know, was there, you know, what kind of problems did you get when you, when you got this, this uh, pitch channel light? Oh, um, well, I, I didn't really notice that until, you know, until I got to the ground that we had that pitch channel light. Well, what were you doing? Oh, well, no, nothing important, nothing important. I was like, no, no, what were you doing? And then you'd find out that, you know, he was put, you know, trying to put these things in like seven and eight G climbs and things like that. And then you'd get a little mad because it's not really designed to take, you know, mm. it's not designed to take that kind of repeated stress. Mm. So um, basically, they just didn't want to get yelled at by the ground crews. And so they didn't want to tell us everything and just leave us kind of, you know, use the magic of discovery and imagination to figure out what the uh, what the problems were. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
What's our next question? I think this is for a pilot, but to see what you think of it. Were the flight controls of the F-111 sophisticated and effective? I think it, that it means, as you know, like from a navigator and a pilot, uh, what were the controls like? But anything to add to that? Um, as far as the uh, the flight controls, sophisticated, um, not really effective, definitely. Um, the one thing that I think the worst thing that we had to deal with as far as, you know, the pilot's flight controls were the rudders. Uh, they had rudder pedals. And if any of you have the C-101 uh, module mm -hmm. on DCS, you know that whenever you go into a stall, you start hearing that rattling noise. Mm -hmm. That's the rudder pedals shaking. Okay. Um, the C-101 and the F-111 both follow from the same... Uh, both follow from the same kind of fault or error, if you will. Um, they do a uh, they do a little thing that we like to call uh, not you know they're basically so stable that uh, when it starts going into a stall condition, you know, like a nose up stall, you know, as if you're climbing. Usually, what happens with most aircraft as you climb up and you start going into a stall, you'll feel some buffeting on the, the airframe. You'll feel it shake. And you'll sit there and go, oh, I'm about to stall, nose down. The F-111 mm, mm. is so heavy mm -hmm. for its type that when you go into a climb, you do not feel that, you don't feel that shake. So uh, with the stall warning relay package and uh, thanks to stall re warning relay package, you would it would send a signal to the rudder pedal and the motor on it, and it would shake that very violently mm -hmm. so a pilot could feel that and go, oh, crap, I'm about to stall, nose down. Um, that is kind of uh, one of the... Re trying to repair that is such a pain in the backside. Um, I don't really know a better way of... Uh, of explaining it other than um, put yourself upside down mm -hmm. in your chair. Um, good grief. Sorry, real life is interfering at the moment. And somebody just has to keep... Uh, oh, good grief. Why would you send me three... F uh, Sorry, I was about I was about I was about to go blue there for a minute, and I don't like to work blue. Um, okay. Uh, anyway, as far as that goes, sit yourself upside down in your chair, close your eyes, and try to perform brain surgery. Mm -hmm. um, on you know, try to perform brain surgery on your spouse or loved one uh, with your eyes closed, and um, only by touch. That's how it is to try and fix one of these stupid uh, rudder pedal shaker motors, of especially because of axis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't just pull the the mm -hmm. rudder pedals out. There's mm -hmm. a giant column in the way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and God, God help you if you're if you're if you're too big, you know, to fit in the seat like that. Mm -hmm. um, such such a pain, such an absolute pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a uh, you know that that was a. That actually wasn't the worst uh, thing to work on, but as far as uh, as far as pilot flight controls, that was the real bear. Um, now, unlike the uh, you know un one thing that I do like to talk about as far as uh, flight controls go, 
is the uh, wing sweep. Mm -hmm. Is that the, hydraulic or electric, by the way? Um, it's hydraulic. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I mean, you, you couldn't do it with just electrics. Mm -hmm. uh, just to, to be totally honest, you, you have to have hydraulic power to move that. Mm -hmm. Unlike the F-14, it's all manual. There is no, uh, there's no throttle-based, there's mm -hmm. no throttle-based uh, wing sweep. Mm -hmm. You know, like how you can do that, mm -hmm. uh, how you can just basically put that little automatic mm -hmm. lock on in mm -hmm. the F-14. You didn't get that with the F-111. Mm -hmm. So you had one uh, lever on the left-hand side, mm -hmm. and you would move that back and forth. I prefer that. Based on, I think that's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, you would move it back and forth based on how the aircraft felt. So mm -hmm. all the feedback you were getting mm -hmm. from the... Uh, you know, all, all the feedback you were getting from that, that was uh, just absolutely, uh, that'd tell you, you know, that, that, like I said, the aircraft would tell you. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had a lot of, you know, uh, that, but again, nice thing, that almost, you know, that thing was just rock solid by the time I got there. No major failures. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. And it was also really fun to, to move that thing during uh, our stability augmentation checks mm -hmm. and our pre, you know, and, and our uh, operational checkouts. Mm -hmm. You'd crank up the you'd crank up the flight control computer, let it do its thing. Have somebody in the cockpit, mm -hmm. you know, moving all the various switches, mm -hmm. making sure that those things got in because you had to do this built-in test within like a minute. Mm -hmm. You're moving the you know you're moving your trim switches, you're moving the stick around, you start moving the uh, you start moving that. Uh, that wing sweep lever forward and backward and you just hear just the sound of those wings moving forward and mm -hmm. backward and you're just like i want to fly this thing now i mean it was just absolutely you know it it, it really wasn't any more describable other than i really wanted to work on that and you know make it happen and and yeah and there i am like an idiot trying to point at the picture going hey use that picture there but yeah, if you see the uh, one marked uh, variable wing sweep mechanism, mm -hmm. where it's got the pilot's glove there, that's literally what they had to move the uh, to move the wing sweep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. it was it was pretty neat. I wonder why the F one eleven had. Uh, I understand why it had manual, but I wonder why it had a hydraulic. Yet the F fourteen had electronic screw with hydraulic reversion. There must have been a reason for that. Maybe it's to do with the automation, but. Okay. It, it probably had something to do with just, you know, uh, again, the F-111, it was a bomber, and it was kind of a testbed for technology. It really was. That's, so yeah, as yeah. as they learned more and more about it, they were able to improve other swing-wing aircraft. So that's why you would see it on, mm. old, you know, on newer aircraft mm. and not on the 111. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Right. Uh, let's jump on to the next one. Where were we? Were the engines powerful enough for the aircraft size and mission requirements? So we have to put this into yes. the. We have to. Well, let, let me do mine, and then I'll pass it over to the expert. I just just want to explain the question. We have to put it into the time and again the purpose. It's a really well worded question there. So this is not a fighter. It doesn't need big power to weight ratio. Uh, it's a very big heavy aircraft, and the engines, even the Mark, Mark Nines, you said, were only. I've just shown about 19, 20,000 pounds each. So compared to an F-15, less power, more weight. However, it's, you know, weight, power to weight ratio is for turning and for, you know, climb, neither of which this needed, really. So for the specification, um, absolutely. And especially, again, when you actually saw it, it was amazing. But sorry, uh, the proper answer. From you. The, the proper answer is yes. Um, however... It's not yes in the way of 
it was perfect for everything could go, you know, Mach 2.5 to Mach 3, you know, f- fly back and forth between New York and LA in a couple of hours, hmm. things like that. Um, by the time that the, you know, by the time I got to the aircraft, a lot of the aircraft started having stress fracturing. Mm. So you weren't allowed to go past one Mach 1.1 1. 1 with mm. these aircraft. Um, you are not going to do a lot of turn and burn mm. uh, type maneuvers with this thing. So as long as it got you in the air, was able to put you where you needed to be and got you back, it was fine for the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, going back to that last uh, thing, the other thing I wanted to also explain to people is that um, as far as the pilot's flight controls were concerned, um, fly-by-wire really spoils a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing does not have fly-by-wire. Mm-hmm. We have cable rig. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the rudders. They had they had a series of actual steel cables mm-hmm. that moved to, uh, you know, the translated mm-hmm. footman, foot movement to the... Uh, the electric uh, hydraulic mm-hmm. damper motors and mm-hmm. the actual surfaces themselves. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, when you have a guy sitting there rigging on a rigging an aircraft, you know, like an old like an old ship of the line, mm-hmm. you know, you're working with kind of an old aircraft. Watcher, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, this one, okay, was the modernization of the Ravens affecting the flight envelope and capabilities of the aircraft in a positive way? Or was it just better access to systems and easier inputs for the pilots? Uh, what's your take on that, if you understand it? It did a lot less for flight characteristics, but it did a lot more for ease of use Which is for, by the yeah. pilot. Mm. Very important. And also ease of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's basically what the aircraft modernization programs were for. Mm-hmm. Um, you can only do so much to change the flight characteristics of, of, a, of an airframe. Mm-hmm. But if you make it easier for the pilot to use... Uh, less stressful, you know, that way he can focus on his mission and you can make it easier for the, uh, for the maintainers to, to fix it when it goes mm-hmm. wrong. That, that's the best improvements you can get on an aircraft. If you make it easy to fix, easy to fly, um, even if it's a complicated, you know, even if it's got complicated systems, boom, that right there is golden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm no fan of fly-by-wire in aircraft, but it makes it 10 times easier to do your job, 100 times easier to actually do a job. Mm -hmm. Um, The next one is talking about the uh, cockpit separation module. We've already gone over it a bit, but anything you'd like to expand on the the module? The only thing I'd really like to explain about about the module is that, uh, one, I know they work. I've seen it. Um, And also, as soon as the uh, Navy got their way to have the tandem... Uh, or to have the side-by-side cockpit, they dropped the project like a hot potato. So, kind you know, it's basically yeah. This this is a the you know, the the entire crew capsule thing, a complete navy leftover for a plane that they neither wanted nor eventually got. So, you know, kind of a inner service deal with that. You know, just like you know, stupid navy ruining our fun. That's about it. Roger. Um, did you have a manual reversion for the wing sweep system in case of hydraulic failure of primary system? No, uh, it, was, it was all hydraulics. Um, if this thing, you know, if your primary or secondary hydraulic systems failed to move the wings, you usually had a way worse problem than being able to move the wings forward quickly. Um, more likely than not, you were going to eject yep. if, uh, if you could move the wings. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you can. I mean, you can land it wing swept. You can fly with wings forward, but um, if your if your wing sweep failed, um, you know, usually if your wing sweep failed, a lot of your other hydraulic surfaces f- were failing as well. So you basically had no choice but to eject. Roger. Okay. And did you ever know of any uh, times when that did fail the wing sweep system, or? No, uh, it never. It never failed. The wing sweep system never failed. Um, now the wing sweep indicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun story about that. I was one of the smaller guys in in my squadron, and one of the uh, one of the the parts that they had was a solid state electronic uh, wing sweep sensor. And what it would do is it would take the uh, it would take an electronic signal from the hydraulic system, and it would be able to tell us, you know, what degree of sweep we got for the aircraft. You know, that way, because uh, we had a wing sweep indicator that would tell you, you know, what degree of sweep you had, and it all came off of this one sensor. And this thing was touted by the guys at General Dynamics of having a mean time mean time between failures of 10,000 hours which in the 60s and 70s and even part of the 80s that was awesome that was something that you basically were never going to have to fix mm-hmm. fast forward to 1996 mm-hmm. when everything's coming up on its you know mm-hmm. 10,000 to 15,000 uh, flight hours mm-hmm. and I replaced three of those damn things mm-hmm. um, with this if you take a look at the um, if you take a look at the F-111 itself um, you will see that the wings sweep into a fairing yeah. on top of the aircraft. And what we would have to do is we'd have to jack up that overwing fairing, find the smallest guy, uh, and you know, on, on duty at the time, slide him under that overwing fairing. Um, if you go back to the, um, it's the aircraft that's in full burner. If you look where that one is, um, I'm just trying to see if I can show you a good, yeah, a good look at the overwing fairing itself. Mm-hmm. But you would slide somebody into that overwing fairing, and the way say, that yeah. the, yeah, the way that the wing sweep sensor was fitted, it was fitted onto one of the hydraulic pumps that ran the spike and cowl system. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was something that was designed to be um, normally fixed by depot, and when you take send the aircraft to depot maintenance, mm. they can tear the whole thing down yeah, completely. Got the tools and get in, yeah. right? Well, when it fails in the field, or in this case on the flight line, you don't get to be able to you know take the entire mm-hmm. you know the entire side of the aircraft off to get to this thing. So we slid under the overwing fairing, and we had to navigate by touch to get mm-hmm. to this thing because oh. it was in a place you couldn't see if you looked down through the main uh, hydraulic. Through the through the main hydraulic uh, pump uh, access panel, so you've got to learn how to uh, basically safety wire with no visual cues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Everything's mm-hmm. by touch. Um, if you have any visual cues, it's off of a very small inspection mirror that you're mm-hmm. able to get in there. Um, so even if you do see something, it's all backwards. Mm-hmm. So basically, you just kind of closed your eyes and just started working by hand to get it to work properly. Mm-hmm. And somehow, some way, don't know, but it's it worked. Way of doing it. Yeah, good engineer yep. finds a way of doing it. 
Yep, it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, once you got done, you you dragged yourself out from underneath that thing, and um, you're sitting there going, "Yeah, I did something that nobody else was ever going to do." Mm -hmm. And then I did it two other times. So it was just a, uh, you know, it's just. Well, I guess I guess it was just bad luck on my part that you know that mm -hmm. it had the lousy timing to fail due to old age, mm -hmm. and that's about it. Yeah, I have. Uh, yeah, but well, there's no manual of telling you how to do that. I have an inkling of your pain. I work on used to work on '90s cars that were 20 years old at the time, yes. and just weren't designed yes. very well for maintenance bits because they're not designed to fail. Those parts, the car's designed to be scrapped, obviously, before you replace those parts. Right. And so getting under is just like you said, although it's not as bad as. A uh, plane still upside down, blind with a mirror and a torch, kind of being propped up by glue somewhere. Is exactly. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. yeah. I mean that 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 is exactly how it is. It's it's like I've tried telling people, um, you know, even though technically we were avionics, um, as far as uh, as far as the other avionics uh, sections were concerned, we were glorified mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, because we came, we came walking out with as much, you know, covered in as much engine oil and hydraulic fluid as your crew chiefs did. A little bit less than the hydro specialists and a little, and a lot less than the engine specialists. But you know, it was always sitting there going, "Okay, there's a shop. There's you know, their uniforms are mostly clean. There's C shop. Their guys are mostly clean. But B shop, you can tell that because we look like we've been through hell." You know, mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. kind of kind of one of those things. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting. Roger, I think we can skip the next one. We've said, is the F one eleven easy aircraft to maintain and keep operational or not? We talked about that a lot. Or is it's a pig? Yeah, I, I, it's gonna. That's exactly the feeling I got. I've like I said, I've spoken to F sixteens, F fifteens, all sorts, and I've got a good idea of what's good and what's easy. And this just sounds like it's not easy, despite being big. And big is usually means quite easy to work on, but. Uh, I'm hearing from you that it's just a bitch the way it was designed. Yeah, it, it, it really is. It's 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 a pig. But the reason why it was such a pain is because again, this is an aircraft that broke found it broke new ground. Nobody was mm, entirely yep. sure how to do this. Mm -hmm, yep. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it was a pain in the ass to work on, but it was something where everything that you learned from this aircraft got integrated into all the you know all the aircraft that came after it and made things easier for everybody else so you know i was a guinea pig oh no that's you know that's about all there was to it my job yep no i couldn't agree more from what i've heard anyway certainly quick question just for the viewers at the moment did uh, one ever get an air-to-air -air kill in the gulf or any other time i don't think so but they did force a um a mirage or something or a mig to crash didn't they i remember because it's a um, to-do list it was a uh and I, I will I will defend I will defend this to my dying day. We got a maneuver kill. God damn it! Mm -hmm. um, now, mind you, this was before I joined. This was in '91 uh, when the Gulf War kicked off. I was six months too young to enlist, um, so I, I missed I missed the Gulf War completely. So, and I don't I don't claim any Gulf War status or anything like that. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, Captain Heaton got a kill. Uh, yep. it was it was a uh, Mirage F1. He caused it to crash by just basically, you know, by basically taking the automatic terrain following system, 
putting it to 200 feet off the deck, 6G ride, and just daring the, the, the mm -hmm. Iraqi pilot mm -hmm. to come after him. Now, the Iraqis all say, oh, we never launched any Mirage F-1s in that area. Um, I don't care what they say. I'm calling BS, and uh, we got the kill. And we got it. We got it before the... We got it before the boys of the fabulous first fighter squadron mm -hmm. in uh, at Langley got an air-to-air -air kill with their you know with their fancy little Amram mm -hmm. you know off of an F-15. Mm -hmm. We got it first. We're better. Suck it. You mm -hmm. know that's about it. I'm gonna leave you. I'll leave you a lot to argue about that. But very good. Uh, I don't know what this means, but can you tell us a bit more about your deployment? Oh, sorry, right, deployment in Italy and on Operation Denny. Flight or is it deny flight? Sorry, deny, deny flight. flight. Sorry, I completely right. misread that. But please carry on. That's okay. Um, well, um, I can tell you that uh, Aviano, Italy, is absolutely beautiful. Uh, the the base. Um, I actually went and took a look at the uh, at, you know thanks to Google Maps. Uh, I took a look at the base and they have completely rebuilt it from the time that I was there. Um, I remember it being completely crowded because this was designed this was an airbase designed for maybe three squadrons of aircraft and you had the entirety of NATO flying out of it so we had to find spots for our aircraft we had to find spots for Spanish uh, F-18s we had to find spots for uh, for uh, I think some marine F-18s we had to find spots for other Air Force aircraft. Um, we had to find spots for um, French and uh, British uh, E3 sentries, and you could always t you could always tell the French ones because they just had to let you know that they were you know <laughs> they had a second language because everywhere you went you saw NATO, and then right after it OTAN because mm -hmm. you can't just have NATO you had to have it in French as well. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, those are the French aircraft. Like that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the British didn't have a problem with it. It was just NATO. Um, and then uh, you had the, um, you had that, we had a bunch of, uh, we had a bunch of C-130s that were all in a civilian livery. So I have no idea what that was, what that was about. Um, I'm assuming it's some, you know, goofy government agency. Um and you're trying to basically put 10,000 people into a base designed for about 2,000. So uh, technically, we were supposed to be living on base in a tent city. The Marine Air Wing decided that any living in any amount of luxury was a, some kind of sin. So they took over the entirety of, of our assigned area in the tent city, which was kind of silly on their part because that meant that we had to be moved off base. And at the time, there were so many people in the, on the base that the nearest place we could find for housing was a three-star hotel right on the coast of the Adriatic Sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the Marines, you know, kind of, uh, kind of screwed the pooch on that one. Because, okay, you can either live in a resort <laughs> town every day and travel, you know, and, and commute 40 miles each way. Or you can live in a tent. Hmm. So it's like, guys, um, we're right here at the beach. Now, I know you guys usually get to the beach a totally different way than we do. We walk to the beach. You know, you drive hmm. up on it. But we're sitting there going, okay, beach, right before 
uh, right before the, the vacation season starts. Yeah. Uh, we were, I mean, it was kind of, it was kind of one of those things where we would live it up and you know, everybody was like, why are you guys always so happy? It's like, mm-hmm. dude, we go to the beach every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's where we do all of our runs was on the beach. So, you know, looked like a really goofy version of chariots of fire there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we'd go out there, we'd do our runs on the beach and everything like that. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, you, you do that and you, you go by all the girls who are sunbathing and you're just sitting there going, yeah, this is paradise. But, um, you would have the, uh, what, one of the big things that happened while I was there was when Scott O'Grady got shot down. And I think you mm-hmm. did a video on this. Um, I can't yeah, remember, you, but I thought you guys did a video on the Scott O'Grady shoot down. It's either on a list or we've done it. I've done so many now. Yeah. And uh, basically, here's the thing to remember. If if you haven't done it yet, just keep your electronic, uh, your, your electronic self-defense jamming system off. Because that's basically why he, uh, why he got shot down. Um, but, uh, essentially what was going to happen, we were going to be there for two months to provide, uh, uh, jamming support for aircraft that were enforcing the no fly zone around Bosnia Herzegovina. And as we're getting ready to leave the first time, uh, a group of, I think Dutch or British, uh, combat engineers gets taken hostage by the Serbians. And so we get to stay on a little longer. Not a problem. Uh, they move us from uh, the the resort town of Lignano Sabiadoro up to the you know one of the larger cities in in the area uh, called Pordenone, and uh, you know much much closer you know to commute and everything like that. So we get packed on buses, move all of our stuff, you know, uh, go into Pordenone, get put into another hotel that's even nicer than the last one. So again, thank you Marine Corps. You just had to you just had to you know show you were tougher than us. So hey. You did, um, and uh, yeah, I mean this. You know, it's it's really tough to it's really tough to, to get up in the morning, you know, run mm-hmm. down the cobblestones of a run run the cobblestones of an old, you know, of, a, of an old Italian city, and then um, you know before you, you you know before you get ready to go to work, you know, stop by the local cafe for you know for for you know nice cup of coffee and and some pastry for for breakfast. Yeah, I mean. You know, we, we, we could, I mean, we could have roughed it. We really could have, but they didn't. But uh, anyway, okay. you get the, uh, you get the first, uh, you get the first incident happening. So they put us on for another, another month and a half. No problem. Then Scott O'Grady gets shot down and everybody's sitting there going, well, where's our, you know, where's our electronic warfare? Where's our electronic warfare? Well, your electronic warfare was right there and it was providing signals. However, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as you showed in one of your uh, F-15 videos, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's that little thing called burn through. Mm-hmm. If we get too close to a uh, to a radar site, it stops working. And the um, when that happens, and if you're not running a self protection jammer, or you're you get too close with your self protection mm-hmm. jammer, you get burned through. You get shot down. That's basically what happened to uh, Scott O'Grady. Um, essentially his jammer wasn't on at the time and boom, he was just, he was a sitting duck. Um, but that got our squadron there for another, I want to say another six weeks to maybe two months. Um, basically what happened after that was, um, 
I was there for about another two weeks after that, and then I rotated back to uh, back to the United States, and somebody else took my position, which I was like, okay, that's fine. And then I come to find out that had I stayed there for the the full six and a half months, um, I would have wound up getting it. They would have actually packed up everything in my barracks, sent it over to Aviano, and done a permanent change of station for me, only to have me go back to the United States and do another permanent change of station uh, three weeks later. So, yeah, kind of a, you know, kind of a weird thing there. But uh, it was a, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't really know how else to explain it. But the uh, Denai flight was very interesting. Um, never flew into Bosnia. Um, that was for, you know, that was for people who made more money than me. But um, got a chance to work with a lot of different air forces. I uh, got a chance to work with the Italian Army. They had an armored division right next door to our base. Mm -hmm. And those guys loved, and it, it just always blew my mind, two things they loved, soccer, naturally, and baseball. They loved baseball. So they were, I mean, so we were constantly having, I mean, we were constantly having games with them left and right. Um, but yeah, um, Italian armored divisions, those guys, you know, those guys know how to live and they know how mm -hmm. to have fun, even mm -hmm. when they're driving tanks around, mm -hmm. you know, they, they drive their tanks like they drive Ferraris, you know, it's, it's fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, the, uh, the, the, you know, all the other air forces that we worked with super professional, um, always willing to, you know, always willing to give us, you know, give us a hand in, in sourcing parts when needed. Um, you know, NATO, you know, NATO at the time, you know, they, they had, at least as far as the air forces were concerned, they had their shit together to put it mildly. Um, they, everybody knew what they were doing. Everybody worked as a, as a, as a great big team. Um, one of the incidents, one of the things I remember is, uh, Royal Air Force had brought in a couple of Jaguar aircraft. Mm -hmm. I think they, they brought in, I want to say they brought in at least six or seven hearing those things, uh, hearing those things start up. Mm-hmm. Um, that is just one of those things. You just get this, this crazy. That? I never, I never heard it. Note. Never heard it before. Oh man, you just get this insane, super low bass note as the because, uh, you know, being a mechanic, you understand the concept of engine note, right? Mm -hmm. The engine note on this, on those Jaguar engines. Oh my God, you just hear. I mean, you just hear this. You know, you you mm -hmm. feel it first, and mind you. I was on, you know, the, these things were over on the uh, the ready taxiway mm -hmm. when they're doing this, and I could feel it in my, uh, I could feel it where in the shelter I was working in. Mm. So the engine on the APU. Um, I don't know if it was the. I think I think it was the actual mm -hmm. engine itself, because okay. just hear this, and you would feel it. Then you would hear it, and you're just like, okay, that's an engine starting mm -hmm. up, and then all of a sudden we just saw these, these Jaguars, you know, you know, you could kind of tell where the sound came from and then they'd taxi off and, oh man, just absolutely, absolutely, uh, amazing, breathtaking, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, I, I just, you know, I, it's just one of those things. It's like, if I ever had to work on a British aircraft, I mean, yeah, you know, the tornado, similar systems, all that stuff. But I would have loved to have, I would have loved to have tried my hand on a Jaguar. 
Roger. Okay, I just had a quick look at our to-do list as well in the background, and we've still got the Scott O'Grady one to do. The request is that we do a whole six-mission uh, campaign on it, so that's just sitting there waiting to be actioned, but very good. Okay, we are running out of time, so it looks like we'll probably have to do a second half to this if you're up for it some other time. Maybe we'll give it yeah, a few sure. weeks or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, uh, my, my office is actually going to have me start uh, coming back into the office on the 15th. So if you want to do something uh, next week, yeah, or if you want to do some, uh, or if you if you can do anything on Saturday or Sunday, I can get up early. Copy. Okay, well, we'll talk about it. But let's do one more question anyway. Uh, Certainly. While we've, while we've got you now. What was the role of the Raven? We know the basics, but could you tell us uh, more about its capability and where and how its actual missions would take place? Okay. Originally, it was designed as a, uh, as the you know the some of the lead aircraft in a uh, in like an Alpha Strike package. Basically, um, they would be in the front and they would kind of sweep enemy uh, radar signals, you know, overload enemy radar signals as the aircraft came in. Um, over time, once they found out about burn through uh, with the jamming systems, mm -hmm. it switched off to where it would lead most of the way. Then what it would do is it would peel off and go into basically a racetrack pattern, mm. uh, far you know as far away as they could you know safely get away from surface to air systems, and it would just basically provide uh, tactical jamming there. Um, the F one eleven was rumored to be able to use harms. That's incorrect. Um, they never had anything set up for harms like the Navy did with the EA six. And the only reason why the, the Navy did that with the EA-6 is just because you can only put so many different aircraft types on a carrier. Um, if, you know, the best thing to always do with something like that, go with dedicated electronic warfare or go with dedicated seed. You know, one or the other, both is both is a compromise. Uh, because if they took harm missiles, they couldn't take as many jammers. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's kind of what that was for. So what we would do is we would literally fly the aircraft up there, have it run its pattern, and as the uh, you know as various radar signals popped up, they would try and figure out the the best frequencies to jam them. That's I mean that's that's the way it was explained to me. Um, I didn't you know I didn't have the I didn't have the mm, correct security yeah, clearance to yeah. go any deeper into the ALQ ninety nine. Mm. So I really can't give any information on mm. that. Um, you know all I know is you know fly in a circle. You know, fly in a circle, put, you know, put Trons on target. That's about it. My job. Okay, very good. Well, we'll end part one there. Now, as soon as I saw this this list of questions, I knew this was probably a four or five hour job. Uh, the plane's just got too much to talk about, too much history, and we care too much yeah, about it. Yeah, it. it's, 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 something, it's something that, you know, it's, it's an aircraft that, you know, it's an, it's an aircraft that, you know, hates you, but you love it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's something I could talk about all day. Roger. So thank you very much so far. And I found that really good. And I've learned loads of stuff already. It shows how much little I knew about it, which well, happens it's, with everything. It's been a pleasure. I, I love, I love, uh, I love the stuff you guys do on the channel here. So, I, Roger. you know, to be able to be part of it, I'm very, very happy I can help. Right. Well, I'll hook you up in the next two weeks and we'll get the rest sorted. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. I'll All speak right. to you soon. Cheers then.